0: Hello, I'm Miranda Sawyer and I've got some news about the news. By popular demand, Paper Cuts, our brilliant podcast where we look at the madness and majesty of the daily press, is going five days a week. That means you can hear my hilarious guests getting into the obsessions, the weirdness and occasionally the triumphs of the great British press every day from Monday to Friday. That's Paper Cuts, now out mid-morning every weekday. Follow us now on your favourite podcast app. Paper cuts. We read the papers, so you don't have to. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Seth table The Republican majority in the House of Representatives recently filed articles of impeachment against President Joe Biden. Prominent Trump-affiliated members of Congress, such as Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, introduced a raft of articles of impeachment on everything from Ukraine conspiracy theories to the evacuation of Afghanistan to the Covid rules. In other words, straightforward political differences have now been given as reasons for impeachment. Supporters of the impeachment bit argue that it is merely tit-for-tat after former President Donald Trump became the first in American history to be twice impeached, although he, like every president before him, was acquitted when the trial reached the Senate. Joining us from Canada to make sense of it all is Jason Opel, Professor of History at McGill University. Welcome to the bunker, Jason. Thanks very much. Could you um, maybe tell us something about how the process of impeachment came about, uh, maybe to be embedded in the American Constitution and why?
1: Certainly. So impeachment itself, the word traces back to not long after the Black Death in England, but it was very rarely used until the revolutionary period in England in the 1620s and 40s, and there were over 100 impeachments. Then it went away for a while and it was sort of reborn right around the time of the American Revolution. So the American revolutionaries from the 1770s to 1780s were particularly concerned about abuses of executive power, obviously the power of the king, but especially of the ministers around the king. Um, So unaccountable persons. And that's how impeachment became such a part of American revolutionary thinking. I mean, generally speaking, the the definitional elements of impeachment is that it's a way to remove someone who's otherwise unremovable, right? So it's the, the legislature's approach to executive power, to placement, to people in the court, traditionally in England and in the United States, the real concern among the revolutionaries was how to restrict such power. So long story short, there was an impeachment hearing in 1786 in Britain about William Hastings for Mm -hmm. misuse uh, of government power and maladministration in India. And this was directly in the minds of the American founders. And they put into the U.S. Constitution of 1787 a specific form in which impeachment would be used to remove an otherwise unremovable person, a federal official, uh, president, a judge, to some extent, a cabinet member, and gave off a particular kind of of sequence for for impeaching and then potentially removing such persons.
0: And that's an important point from the Hastings case, that it's actually much broader than just the president being removed. It's executive power in general.
1: That's right. So, And I say executive power as distinct from, say, a member of parliament or certainly a member of Congress – the idea there is that, well, such persons could be voted out, right? So they're not, they're removable through normal, especially in American case, electoral means. Mm. But what about a federal judge who in the mm-hmm. United States um, is appointed by the president? What about a cabinet official? And what about the president himself, right? So, so that's why impeachment is, is something different than voting someone out of office or uh, changing with the government. The idea is, so that you know, again, the definitional thing is that it's about removing the unremovable, and it's especially also the other crucial thing is that impeachment traditionally had not been a crime otherwise. So it's not mm-hmm. like racketeering or uh, um, or larceny; it's some kind of gross abuse of power, some some mm-hmm. some use of an office for grossly corrupt or nefarious means.
0: So it can be a political process, but it, one notable feature I think is that it's incredibly hard. You know, it does need not only to pass through the House of Representatives and winning a vote on each of the articles of impeachment, but then it not only needs to go to the Senate; it needs to win a supermajority of the Senate with sixty percent of the Senate voting,
1: two two thirds of the Senate voting. That's right. Two thirds. Sorry, yes. So I think we should be very clear uh, when we're talking about you know the politicization of things. Of course, impeachment is a political process. It's not a legal process. A legal process is if you commit a crime in the street or you commit a crime in your job. This is a political process, the usual punishment for which is removal from office. So the Constitution actually says, in the case of the president, the punishment shall not extend beyond removal from office. So of course, it's a political process. But as you say, it's a very high bar uh, for it. Impeachment itself is, I guess, akin to being indicted, right? So the lower house indicts someone, the House of Representatives indicts someone. This has happened on 21 occasions in American history, including presidents, um, mostly federal judges, though. But then to be convicted, which is to say to be removed, requires a two thirds vote in the Senate. And that's very hard unless the crime is extremely egregious Mm -hmm. um, and the, the system is running fairly well.
0: Now, American politics was incredibly stormy throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, but it was only in 1868, so, you know, over nine decades after the Declaration of Independence that they had the first impeachment trial of a president with Andrew Johnson. Um, maybe you could tell something on how Andrew Johnson's trial set precedents and f- how it framed our understanding of impeachment.
1: Certainly. Um, just a quick thing, though. I would say that you know, prior to 1868, there had been a number of impeachments, but they were of one was of a senator that was actually the first mm-hmm. one, and the rest were of federal judges, mm-hmm. um, some of which were actually removed. But in any case, yes, 1868 is when the first president is impeached. Um, this then sort of sets in motion Article Two, Section uh, Four, which says the presidents can be impeached for quote treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So Andrew Johnson is technically uh, impeached because he was violating this Tenure of Office Act. But what it's really about was that Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Abraham Lincoln after his assassination, Andrew Johnson was not enforcing the results of the Civil War, to put very frankly. So the Southern uh, secessionists and former slaveholders were basically trying to reassert control over the former Confederacy, and Johnson was letting them. The US Congress was not letting them, and he was impeached for uh, refusing to abide by Congress, which wanted to remake the South to protect the, the formerly enslaved peoples and to integrate the South into the United States in a new way. And Johnson wasn't letting it happen. So he was indicted on 11 different counts. Most of them refer to this Tenure of Office Act, but it's basically saying he's failing in the most basic duty of the president, which is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed and that he's abusing his office by removing people um, who only Congress can appoint. Mm-hmm. And he came extremely close to being, he was wasn't—he was impeached, he came extremely close to being convicted in the Senate, uh, only one vote shy. As for precedents, though, I would say the precedent is that the results of the Civil War were not fully executed. The laws were not duly executed, and the United States is still living with the results, because it took another 100 years for... Uh, Black Americans to receive even the basic political equality, Um, and that's largely, not entirely, but it's it's substantially because Johnson escaped removal. So, I don't know that it really set a precedent in terms of the process itself. It set a precedent in terms of what the political settlement of the Civil War would be.
0: Would it be fair to say that impeachment didn't seem likely for any U.S. president for over a century after Johnson? I know there were some attempts, but they didn't seem to get very far.
1: That's a very fair statement. So there had been, there was a few fairly uh, dicey issues of corruption in the 1920s, for example, but there was no serious move to impeach a president. I think I might even go further and say that impeachment had become so rare and and such a kind of, it was understood that there was an exceptional moment after the civil war and that it really receded into the, the background of American politics and American life.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's what I was getting at, I suppose, with the question about Johnson as a precedent as well, in that um, there seems to be a, a consensus that the one time it had been tried, even though there was a very strong case, it still fell a vote short. And then you get these things like an attempt to impeach Herbert Hoover a month or so before he's due to leave office anyway. Um can you then talk to the next sort of big case in the early 70s about Watergate and how what was called a third-rate burglary became a national trauma and the sort of shadow that that cast?
1: Yes. So it's really a remarkable story in the sense that Nixon, Richard Nixon had just crushed uh, his democratic rival in 1972. But for reasons that Nixon biographers can explain, he just always had to kind of go further and win more and, and control more. So there was this third-rate operation called the Committee to Re-elect the President, which did all kinds of sort of shady things, um, including uh, a break-in of the Democratic uh, National Convention in the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. All right, so how does this become an impeachment inquiry? Essentially, it's because Nixon, you know, his particular involvement in that is, is still a matter of debate, but he certainly used his office to silence people. For example, he... He and his, and his kind of underlings use the threat of um, tax audits using the IRS, mm-hmm. the Internal Revenue Service, to go after his political opponents, firing political uh, appointees who were doing their job um, in the Department of Justice. So in other words, moving from there are shady people who did things in your name to you're using your office to violate the core principle that there are separate and equal branches of government that there, is, there are laws that restrain everyone who holds power and has a trust of power and also making false statements about those measures. And so um, a Judiciary Committee, the House Judiciary Committee, so the committee first meets and then des- and decides whether impeachment articles should be, should be brought, decided on three articles of impeachment. So not really like the 11 for Johnson, but these were about abuse of power and mm-hmm. obstruction of justice and obstruction of Congress. And- it would have gone to the House. Um, the general consensus, he certainly would have been impeached. Whether he would have been removed, we don't know, but he resigned even before the impeachment could actually happen.
0: I mean, certainly, um, for context, it's worth saying that you know, Watergate wasn't just one burglary, as you say. It was a whole raft of illegal and dubious measures which were being carried out by Nixon across the board. and what's often called the smoking gun tape, which is the audio tape that actually prompts his final resignation, yes. where he's on tape uh, as being complicit in a cover-up. We, we can't prove either way whether he instigated Watergate. We can absolutely prove that he was involved in the cover-up of that. And at that point, up until that stage, he'd been saying, well, I'll take my chances in the Senate. Um, you know, I, I might get 30, 40 senators standing by me. But once that tape was out, he, he would you know, it would have been in single figures and he would have lost the trial in the Senate. It was very clear to him at that stage.
1: It was very clear to him. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. But it's, it's, I think it's crucial to sort of pause on that and think about this. So a smoking gun tape, uh, he also thought the Supreme Court, he refused to turn it over, citing mm-hmm. executive privilege. I mean, there's this whole kind of series of constitutional crises around this third rate burglary. But I think it's really fascinating to, to consider that in 1974, the Republican Party itself, um Democratic Party was a bit in disarray at this time, but the Republican Party itself was a powerful institution as an institution, mm. which is to say no single person really controlled it. And when it became patently obvious that Nixon had indeed made false statements and had been involved in covering up this third-rate burglary and abusing his office, th- the majority of Republicans or, the, the, let's say, the, a critical mass of Republican mm-hmm. support dissolved overnight. And as such, members of the Republican Party, kind of delegates, let's say, of the party, Talked to him and said, "You know, we're not. You've lost your support." Mm. Whereupon he resigned. And I think it's important just to consider that for a moment, in contrast to the political moment in the United States now, um, where really in many ways the Republican Party is far weaker mm. as an institution. It's been it's been taken over uh, mm. by a person, put um, frankly, and that's very different than Nixon's era.
0: And one month after Nixon resigns he gets a pardon, a presidential pardon from his successor, Gerald Ford. And how does that play a role in a sort of precedent? I mean, the the belief surely is that a president may not be impeached, but he's certainly not going to be prosecuted. That's what people
1: tend to assume out of that. Yes. I mean, I I think the, the pardon continues in this sort of tradition of saying impeachment is to remove someone from office the Constitution says you can. There can also be similar criminal suits, but not from the the elected branch of government. The pardon of Nixon follows. I suppose there the precedent from eighteen sixty eight. The senators who refused to cast the decisive votes to remove Andrew Johnson said specifically, "We're doing this to preserve a constitutional order under the kind of spirit of minimal intervention." And hoping that the, the the Constitution runs, as it were, uh, on its own without this dramatic last resort of removing people. And I suppose that's the kind of consensus that has lasted until around January 5th or 6th, 2021, Quite. where there are simply lines not to be crossed. Um, and the whole kind of constitutional stability is itself an order or a kind of law, uh, higher law to respect, not at all costs, but at almost all costs.
0: Why has impeachment been so much more likely since Nixon? I mean, presidents like Reagan, George Bush Sr., George W. Bush, they each faced attempts for impeachment even though they didn't get very far.
1: So I think there's a few things going on here. And again, just to, i um, sorry to be the annoying historian always wanting more details, but it, it is, of course, it's important to note, I think, that if you look at impeachments overall, again, including mostly federal judges, um, in one case, a cabinet member, and then the president's just being the small number on top of that, mm. I wouldn't, I don't think there's, you would see a real pattern up through the 80s in, in that. You know, so there's were, there were, there a small number, but they're not, it's not out of whack over the last generation. What is different, as you note, know, is that since the, well, I'm not saying it's because of Watergate, but since the 80s and certainly since then, impeachment has gone from a nearly unthinkable, you know, uh, only in the, mo- in the event of the unthinkable to a, f- a fairly conventional form of political warfare hmm. um, or political brinksmanship that has become the norm.
0: Yes, would it be fair to say maybe that it's more acceptable or less uncommon for a rogue member of Congress, at the very least, to say I, I'm going to be looking at articles of impeachment?
1: Yes, th- th- I mean th- that's fair to say that. So it, it, there's been a taboo broken. Let's say so. So you know, rogue or extreme members of both parties, but it's more the Republican Party, mm-hmm. uh, which is definitely polarized more so, and it'd, it'd do this in a different way than the Democratic Party um, can not only say these things but get political hate out of them for a number of reasons that have to do with most districts in many states no longer being competitive, and therefore only the most extreme win because they are the ones who win the primaries. Um, So that taboo has been broken. um, And I think there's other things going on about the nature of executive power.
0: How much of a turning point was the impeachment of Bill Clinton in 1998? Because he was only the second president to be successfully impeached.
1: That's right. Um, so I would say it's a huge turning point in the sense that the, the the idea of the legitimacy of the opponent really started to fall off, and especially among on the Republican side, uh, that the idea being that the, the Democrats are simply you know not legitimate foes, um, that they're not legitimate officers. It's not to say that that that, that Bill Clinton didn't do um, nef- nefarious or corrupt, maybe even criminal. Thing. Specifically, he was covering up or may well have perjured himself uh, and obstructed in some ways Congress's investigations into uh, extramarital, uh, actually two extramarital affairs or at least alleged affairs. And I suppose the distinction with the Nixon case is that Clinton was covering up, let's say, his own failures of uh, um, personal restraint and morality as distinct from the electoral process and, uh, the holding of power. Mm -hmm. Um, but nonetheless, that, that process, uh, 1998, 1999 was, um, a real moment in the sense that the very kind of grenade throwing style on the right, um, became the prevailing one. And Mm -hmm. I think now has really, really taken over that party.
0: Right. And of course, most recently, uh, before the current impeachment, Donald Trump was twice impeached. And like Johnson and Clinton, he was acquitted in the Senate. Why were Trump's impeachments significant?
1: I think Trump's first impeachment, which has to do with his attempting to pressure uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine to investigate his political rival, Joe Biden, that was significant because it's really the first time I think that the issue is about foreign policy. It's about the, the nature of the president using the the, the powers, the presidency, outside the United States, that's quite distinct from mm-hmm. from previous presidential impeachments. Mm-hmm. It's distinctive also in the sense that if there was to be a smoking gun, the transcript of the of the conversation with Zelensky didn't become a smoking gun. It did not garner the same kind of reaction among Republicans. I think, though, that that impeachment, the first impeachment. It just didn't garner enough kind of passion and support, even on the Democratic side, because at the time, it's hard to imagine this now, Ukraine seemed like a fairly marginal issue in American life. Mm. Um, So, you know, I I think they didn't quite get the same kind of resonance. In my opinion, though, the second impeachment is Mm. vastly more significant. And I think it will be, we will look back in 50 or 100 years and see the second impeachment as... um, perhaps equally significant as the Johnson impeachment. That is a mm-hmm. real moment of profound historical change that would shape things for generations.
0: Yes, and I suppose um, although they're a totally separate process, the current criminal proceedings around that are really an extension of all of those issues.
1: Yes, And again, the Constitution is very clear um, that that the impeachment itself shall only extend to removal from office, but the person impeached can also be tried. Mm -hmm. But the key thing is they can only be tried in a legal process separate from the elective uh, members of Congress, which is to say you can be pursued in a legal matter if you committed a crime on the books as distinct from a high crimes and misdemeanors that can be defined by Congress when it impeaches someone.
0: I made my views fairly clear in the opening introduction, but what do you make of the current attempts in the House to impeach Joe Biden? I mean, what do they say about American politics today?
1: I think it really is a story about the Republican Party. Um, Again, the party that was so institutionally strong two generations ago or a generation ago is far less so now. There are very few structural limits on radical um, far-right conspiracy theories of the kind that there were you know, a generation or two ago. So it's a story of electoral polarization. It's a story of the decline of institutions and the rise of um, people who don't owe their political power traditionally to their riding. So you mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene. Her power comes not entirely, but largely from social media. It's not from her district in Northwestern uh, Georgia. Mm-hmm. and that means that she has very little what, what is the what what reason does she have not to post conspiracy theories which will simply get more attraction and, and pull so i think it's a story of republican polarization electoral polarization um and as for the nature of the charges uh i'll put this as generously as i can it, it's certainly possible that, that the president's son hunter biden you know, abused or attempted to abuse his father's mm-hmm. positions of power. Yeah, But that's okay. very different from his father doing those things, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a quite, it, it seems to me mm-hmm. a bit of a reach to, to make that claim. Although, you know, who knows what evidence comes out, but let's also be real here about the nature of an impeachment. It's supposed to be for the person abusing power, not a person related to them trying to get favors via that power. And as for the retreat from Afghanistan or the responses to the COVID pandemic which Mm. mr biden inherited that is i mean that's just a a new thing that that that, that is a bridge farther than any previous impeachment because it is not related to the misuse or maladministration of power it's about a political Mm. decision or um political uh, processes that every president faces well, thank you. That's
0: deeply insightful, Jason. You're, you're a man of many talents. You're writing a book on the history of the British Empire by Barbados, I think.
1: Yes, I am. Uh, it's a really fascinating story about how one little island was so influential, and I'm trying to think of that as the, in the, the broader histories of both the United States and Great Britain. Um, and it's, it's an interesting thing in history now to kind of just change the, the place and time that you're looking at, and you always get new answers. Fantastic. Well, thanks
0: so much for joining us. And thank you as ever for joining us, our dear listeners. We'll be back only too soon with another edition for your delectation. And if you enjoy the podcast, remember you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever-expanding catalogue of shows, including The Bunker, Oh God, What Now?, Origin Story, Rock and Roll Politics, We Are History, and our newest offering, Paper Cuts. Thanks for listening. Until next time. The Bunker was written and presented by Seth Tavo. The producer was Chris Jones. Audio production was by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.